Welcome, everybody, and thank, thank you for being here. Uh, I'll tell you, um, reading Heschel affects the way I write. It's really interesting. It's fun. It inspires me. What? Um, Miriam mentioned that she had, last week, if you weren't here, we were reading a, an, a, an address he gave to the National Council on Aging in 1961, the White House Council on Aging, called To Grow in Wisdom. And Miriam said she had a reflection she wanted to share. I'd like to. Please do. Because one of the things of what we discussed was the commandment, basically, of honoring our parents. And I was thinking, because last week I thought a lot of people shared some things that were kind of confusing to me. Um, and I realized that as a parent, my goal is to honor my children and encourage them to be, become self-sufficient, independent, fulfill what they need to do to be financially able, to be spiritually fulfilled, and all those things. So I was thinking now as I'm growing older with some physical things coming up, if my daughter suddenly became very concerned in my medical issues, <laughs> I would not feel honored by her. I would feel hovering from her. And so that's only my perspective. Oh. Because I grew up, not by my choice, had to become very independent as a single parent, which flashed, you know, put my kids into having to be very independent. And they told me, you know, first they wanted more of a mother at home, but now they love it. And so I was thinking by honoring my children and what helping them to encourage them to get in order to have a full life, that when she does come and comes to visit and we have long talks, I feel more honored than if she was hovering. Okay. Thank you. So that's my thought. It seems like uh, my, my, my reflection on that is there's no single right way to parent. Uh, and uh, what counts is the relationship that, that you're able to sustain and maintain. So, yeah, great. So, yes, Lori. I had a reflection, too. And I actually had the reaction when, when it was read here. I don't remember exactly where it is. But basically, this is about aging. And not only... Am I accusing him of this? I'm accusing anybody who only deals with our aging population and only deals with the fact that, yes, we are getting older and, yes, we have to change our lives, but does not deal with the last stage of life, which is death. And I'm always amazed by that because a lot of the fears that people have about aging is who's going to take care of me, where am I going to live, how am I going to do it, all that. But in these aging groups, that we've been to or led or whatever or read about. And he also has not really mentioned the last stage of life. He's just talking about getting older. So I have a little issue with that. I mean, I appreciate what he did, but I say to myself, if in 1961 he had included that here, you know, to how do we deal with dying and death, things might have changed a lot quicker, is all I'm saying. Thank you. Good. Uh, a subject we will remain interested in as we get older and then each one of us reaches our end. I have had such an interesting time um, reading essays and so I'm following my um, 
my interest, my curiosity. And this essay is fairly long, but it really spoke to me as a congregational rabbi. Uh, and so I thought I would uh, read it with everybody. Um, this, this was an address. Let me just give it the spirit of Jewish prayer. I, I don't know how much we're going to get through it, but I wasn't at all. I wanted to read it all, so I photocopied it all for you. This was given, let's see, I'm looking in the credits here. Uh, oh, right. At the Rabbinical Assembly of America's National Conference, the Rabbinical Assembly in 1953. The Rabbinical Assembly is the rabbinical arm of the conservative movement. Heschel was a teacher at the Jewish Theological Seminary, where they, which is the flagship, as they say, and the center of the conservative movement. He was a fish out of water there for many reasons, especially because he came from this Hasidic, devotional, traditional family uh, and then, as I described, was educated in Berlin in the, what was known in the, starting the late 19th century as the Wissenschaft der Judentum, the science of Judaism, which was an effort by Jews in Germany who were modernizing to bring rigorous academic study to the field of Judaism. A word of background on that, uh, Wissenschaft. Uh, the, the modern study of religion as an academic discipline only starts in the 19th century, right? With the whole idea that religion would be the subject of academic study. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, it's like, for us, it's a given that we study religion. But no, you didn't study religion. You just did religion until then. But that's what modernity wrought. Uh, and uh, one of the problems in European uh, emerging study of religion is that a lot of it was a, you know how a lot of scholarship, you'll forgive me if that it, um, is an effort to sound objective while you're actually just trying to make your point? <laughs> um, that's my experience with a lot of academic scholarship. Um, and of course they have to, the, one of the reasons I'm not in academia is I don't want to have to pretend that this, isn't, that this is objective, right? I don't want to have to talk in academies. It's just not something I enjoy. Um, uh, not that it doesn't have a lot of value. But anyway, the, the Christian scholars of the university in 19th century Europe were busy showing how the academic study of religion proved that Judaism was obsolete and that Christianity was actually the pinnacle of um, civilization, right? And they're doing it now in a new form, in a new arena, and what else is new, right? You could expect that almost. And so as Jews started entering the academy, they felt they had to um, respond. And that became the modern study of Judaism initiated by Jews, especially in Germany. That's a whole interesting side, side subject. Uh, and a lot of the, lot of the um, early studies of Judaism in the 20th century, uh, really are debates about whether Judaism was just preparing for Christianity or, you know, or whether it was in its own right 
you know, a, a valid phenomenon. And I'm glad that most of those academic debates are truly passé at this point in modern academia. But anyway, Heschel's origins were in devotional, passionate study and prayer. He then moved to Berlin where he got his PhD in philosophy at the University of Berlin. And uh, um, so he knew both worlds. When he landed in the United States as a refugee from uh, Berlin and Poland in 1940, I said after five years in Cincinnati, he uh, wound up um, getting an appointment at the Jewish Theological Seminary, basically the center of Wissenschaft in America, the center of the academic study of Judaism, produced amazing scholarship and amazing stuff I use on my shelf. In other words, this isn't, I'm not dissing it. I'm just saying that what it lacked, however, as much of the 20th century lacked, was a connection to the purpose of religion as opposed to the study of religion. Does that make sense, everybody? Um, and so generations of conservative rabbis went to a rabbinical school where they learned how to study Judaism, but they didn't necessarily learn why. Uh, and um, and uh, it was a problem. And Heschel, in that environment, was a voice for the why. As so it happens with Mordechai Kaplan, who was also teaching there at the time. So he was in many ways, like Kaplan, persona non grata, you know, among the faculty who felt very critiqued and threatened by them. But the rabbinical assembly invited him to be their keynote speaker. And Heschel being who he was, someone who felt that it was his responsibility to speak the truth, however humbly, however respectfully, he just, he didn't pull any punches in this talk about what was wrong with synagogue. And anybody who grew up during that period as a synagogue goer will recognize his words and know that uh, we're still fighting this. This is still a big problem in making a synagogue a place of relevance in Jewish people's lives. So, so in this talk, he's really looking, speaking inward to the Jewish community, not necessarily outward as I, uh, in the first two weeks that I shared with you, uh, addressing larger societal problems. Um, but they're all transferable one way or the other, but this is just where he's addressing. Uh, so picture the scene, him speaking in front of the whole annual convention of conservative rabbis in 1953. And I want to just start reading. And you can pause at any time and comment or anything you want. And uh, uh, we'll see where we go today. It is with a sense of great responsibility that I undertake to discuss with you such a sacred topic, a topic which is called one of the most sublime things in the world, matters that stand on the heights of the universe that are of supreme importance. I'm going to discuss not only the spirit of Jewish prayer, but also the state of prayer in the present day synagogue. The time has come for a self-examination. Let us search and try our ways and return to the Lord. But to find a cure, we must have the courage to study the ills. In advancing some critical marks, 
remarks, I do not mean, God forbid, to take a superior attitude. In all honesty, my criticism will be, to a considerable degree, self-criticism. I am conscious of the great work which members of this assembly are doing, and it is with respect and affection that I address my remarks to this audience. Moreover, numerous conversations with some of my own former students assembled here tonight give me the right to feel that I am not going to speak to you but for you. I am going to be, in a sense, your emissary. Poor and worthy deeds, I am horribly frightened in thy presence, who are enthroned and receiving praise from Israel. That's the beginning words of the Chazan's prayer on Yom Kippur called Hineni, where Hineni animemaas, here I am, uh, un, un, unworthy of this task of being the emissary for the congregation. Yeah. Another copy on oh, yes, sure there are. Um, they were on the, they were on the um, uh, table out there. We just missed getting you one. Thanks, Ruth. I speak to you on prayer, though I am not deserving nor qualified for the task. Open my mouth, O Lord, and my lips will proclaim your praise. So he begins with quotes from the liturgy. Our services are conducted with pomp and precision. The rendition of the liturgy is smooth. Everything is present. Decorum, voice, ceremony. But one thing is missing. Life. One knows in advance what will ensue. There will be no surprise, no adventure of the soul. There will be no sudden burst of devotion. Nothing is going to happen to the soul. Nothing unpredictable must happen to the person who prays. He will attain no insight into the words he reads. He will attain no new perspective for the life he lives. Our motto is monotony. <laughs> what was will be, and there is nothing new in the synagogue. The fire has gone out of our worship. It is cold, stiff, and dead. Inorganic Judaism. <laughs> True, things are happening, of course, not within prayer, but within the administration of the synagogues. Do we not establish new edifices all over the country? Yes, the edifices are growing yet worship is decaying. Has the synagogue, you know what, you know Jews call it the building, big buildings, the, the edifice complex. That's the joke. <laughs> yeah. What year is it? 1953. Has the synagogue become the graveyard where prayer is buried? Are we the spiritual leaders of American Jewry, members of a burial society? There are many who labor in the vineyard of oratory, but who knows how to pray or how to inspire others to pray? There are many who can execute and display magnificent fireworks, but who knows how to kindle a spark in the darkness of a soul? Some of you may say I am going too far. Of course, people still attend services. He puts it in quotes. Remember, this is a guy who comes from a Hasidic family can you believe how shocked he must be to see this form of Judaism? Um, and that's not to say that, not to romanticize Hasidism, but they know how to pray. <laughs> of course, people still attend services, but what does this attendance mean to them? Outpouring of the soul, worship, prayer, synagogue attendance has become a benefaction to the synagogue, 
a service of the community rather than service of God. Worship of the congregation rather than worship of God. People give some of their money to UJA and some of their time to the synagogue. The modern synagogue suffers from a severe cold. <laughs> Our congregants preserve a respectful distance between the prayer book and themselves. They say the words, forgive us for we have sinned, but of course they are not meant. They say, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart in lofty detachment, in complete anonymity, as if giving an impartial opinion about an irrelevant question. <laughs> Did anybody grow up in a synagogue like this, that, where this critique might hold? Some. Ah, I think all I need to say, really, is picture our services at their best. Ours, here. And it's not the same as Hasidic prayer, because it's not a cacophony, but are we being moved? Is prayer affecting us? And that's, that's the question, which in the synagogue I grew up in, as lovely as the people were, really warm. I loved my synagogue. But we were truly going through the motions. No one explained to me that this should have any impact on me. It was all pro forma. I, I learned all the melodies. I enjoyed it. It's, I got bored. I was, you know, but this, no one talked about this. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, yes. Oh, sorry. Yes, Ruth. And then Myra. <laughs> That's an interesting way of looking at it. So decorum, that is to say that there are many factors at work here. One of them was the imposition of, of what would be understood to be kind of waspy decorum on Jewish life. And that's definitely one factor. But there's a lot of other factors as well, especially our secularization, right? We grew up in a period of intense secularization where the idea of the, of, the, of the emotive, devotional passion, and I mean, why baby boomers were drawn to the Hare Krishnas was precisely because it was completely absent from most of our lives growing up. And it's a felt need in many people to be able to express themselves devotionally to the creator, to the universe. So we, me growing up in the 50s and 60s, I grew up in that um, landscape, devoid, full of, as I said, in my little synagogue, because I grew up in a little synagogue, full of warmth and people who cared about me and friendliness, but why I was praying, not a clue, not a clue. Myra? Yeah, um, I have a, a different perspective, maybe, on the uh, Hasidic synagogues. Well, I, uh, yes, have you been in some yourself? Many. Yeah. 
I've been in many. And of course, I've been with the women, and the men are all down there. And the mm -hmm. women are all upstairs with the children. Mm -hmm. And they do have a C-door, but most of the time they're distracted. But the men are covered with their talit, totally uh, engrossed in individual prayer. That's right. You know, and somebody's reading, but they're all davening and, and, and I don't find that very um, communal. I don't, I don't find it very um, warm. And it's, to me, it's like a duty. They're saying it in rote. And they're, right. they're, I don't even know if they're understanding what they're saying. Right. They've learned it in, in yeshivas. Right. And um, they're in their roles and they're doing what they're doing. And right. I, um, spirituality, I don't see it there. I didn't see it there. I totally understand. It may be absent there. Maybe. Because, I'm serious, because uh, as Heschel, Heschel's, gonna, Heschel's critique is of prayer as a rote activity. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying he grew up and he's of the personality that he, for him, prayer is all about talking to the creator. It's like nothing less. It's about opening ourselves to the mystery. For him, he is a, he's a mystic. He's a devotional mystic. I explained that. But, but no Jewish sect and no religious sect is immune from uh, l forgetting why they've created forms for worship. And instead, the form itself seems to become the end in itself. Mm -hmm. So I'm in complete agreement. I do not want to romanticize Hasidism. I'm saying, but he came from an environment where this was, since he was so inclined, was permitted to him, and this, for him, the foundation of prayer is a living experience. Uh, and then he comes to America where he can't find it anywhere. Uh, so that's one of the things I'm saying. Yes? I, I don't know. I just find that it's rote no matter where I go, no matter the denomination, whether it's here, whether it's in Israel. Uh, in, in Israel, there are some synagogues that have a little more life to them. Uh, and maybe it's because it's Israel, but by and large, they're wrote wherever you go, and the prayer service is fixed, and it's a different story if you're doing contemplative prayer, if you're alone, if you're doing hippo de dot, pronounced it wrong, but yeah. uh, Rebbe Nachman's mm -hmm. directions, mm -hmm. And you just don't get that in the synagogue, no matter what the synagogue is. Well, I'll humbly submit that we've been experimenting with that here for the last three decades. Uh, and we do our very best to try to make what Heschel's asking for real in our services here. We do more or less successful. But I would say that um, it's possible. Um, I don't know if you've been to services much here. No, I know my friend Mishka Luft comes here periodically. Right, but right, right. So, but, the, but places like ours, which I will, I will say we are actually addressing this problem, uh, are few and far between, and that is still the case. Um, but there are some. Marka? Um, I don't know if you remember this, but a, a couple months ago there was a little boy, I don't remember his name, at one of the bar mitzvahs who was who prostrated himself on the bima for like 10 minutes. A little, little boy. Yeah. And I was so envious because I, for me, like physiologically, like poor and worthy deeds, I am horribly frightened in thy presence. Like I want to mm -hmm. prostrate. 
but the but it's like it's just such a tricky issue because it's the ritual that allows prostration or whatever to become decorous but then it becomes pre prescribed so it's like how do you you know how do you like allow yourself especially these physical you know that's right yeah so this is the perennial problem not just for Jews for anyone so let me back up a, a couple of steps so and um, and say that in my opinion and in my observation humans organize into groups in or in order to and create rituals as a matter of our wiring and uh, so some if and then we create rituals that will, in religious sense, ideally create a sacred context outside of our ordinary lives in which we have inner permission to express the deepest prayers of our hearts, as opposed to in the marketplace or elsewhere. We create these settings. And because we're humans, these settings are, are filled with the booby trap of becoming rote because that's what we humans do. Things become habits. So the rabbis address this in the Talmud with the phrases keva and kavana. Keva being the fixed form, kavana being the intention we pour into it. So what we're dealing with is something that's always going to be a challenge. By having a fixed form and a set time of meeting, a group of people know when to get together and what to do together so that we can aim our hearts in the same direction. But by having a fixed form and a set time of meeting, that doesn't guarantee that that's the moment when you're going to be feeling inspired. It doesn't guarantee that. So it's just a problem of being human, as far as I can tell. So for me, as a rabbi, the question is how to infuse our presence into our fixed form. And that's that's the game. That's my game as a ritual leader. We're going to read more because our questions are going to be addressed. This is, the reason I chose this is this is a problem. It's almost an existential problem of those who feel the yearning to praise the Lord, to, to say how great thou art, to say, um, uh, I thank you, Lord, for this most amazing day. It's like, Whatever, you know, it's not about what Lord is. It's about the need in us to praise and to worship and to give thanks. And how do we do it? And how do we then institutionalize it? Because in the absence of doing that, we are crippled souls. Right? That's my conviction as a religious leader. In the absence of each of us having some way to express the exaltation we experience of the universe, we're crippled. And uh, so we look for forms in order to find a way to do that. And then the forms become the idol that we worship rather than the vehicle for the living God. Right? The form is dead. And we forget that the form is only there as a vehicle for the living God. Gail? I saw your hand before. It was before, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I think I wanted to say two things. One was that the other side of having a communal praying prayer is 
having then to keep up with or stay on the same page, literally, as the rest of the congregation as we yeah. pray, which is often a problem when one is feeling, in fact, the opening of the heart. Mm-hmm. Because I might want to still be saying, you know, right. let, let, me, let me speak to that for a minute. So the only thing we can do to deal with that is have our communal prayer be one of radical permission, right? You are permitted in this setting to bow down if the Spirit moves you, to stay where you are if the Spirit moves you. And I, I've told this story many times, but my grandfather of blessed memory, Joe Schuper, who loved to pray, he davened every day after he, quit his, after he finally retired from his business and he went to his minion every day. And I said to him in my 20s, um, uh, I, uh, when I was uh, in my first year of rabbinical school, he was still alive. And uh, I, I got to spend time with him when I was finally able to, like, appreciate his answers. <laughs> and uh, I said to him, Pop, how do you do it? How do you pray every day? All those words. He says to me, I don't pray all the words. I said, you don't pray all the words? He said, no. No, I get to a part I like, and I just stay there. And then I get to another part I like. And I went, that's, oh, that's okay? <laughs> and so it was really, I wasn't looking for his permission, but he gave me permission to approach prayer in a totally different way. I was completely stymied at the beginning of rabbinical school because it was too many words. And, I, and to just fo- focus on my favorite phrases and to hang out with them. And then over the course of the decades, the phrases get longer and longer. It's almost as though as they become my lines. Uh, you know, I inhabited the part long enough that I, but there's still big gaps of the prayer book that don't particularly grab me. And I um, don't feel obliged to stay there. So yes, so we have to, it's, it's interesting, I forget this. We need to repeat there needs to be like a, a, an announcement in the front page of the prayer book and a, over the door of the synagogue. You have permission to pray God, to God as you are so moved. Um, because otherwise, I, I don't feel like we're fulfilling our purpose. Um, that's very interesting. Barbara, Car- oh, finish what you want to say. Yeah, yeah, the other is I don't know if you want to go here now, but it's, it seems to me we know this, and we've talked about this other times, that after the Holocaust, it was really hard for Jews to come to synagogue at all, much less to say thank you for all the blessings mm-hmm. and for your protection. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was insane. If right. That right. So a lot of the reversion to just pure, we'll say the words, but we're not paying any attention, I think really, for Jews at least, was that. And I think it's taken until fairly recently and at least one more generation you know, to be able to begin devotional practice again for many people. I think that it's only, I hear you and I agree, and it's truly only part of the answer. Yeah, because, in the, no, seriously, in the 20s and 30s, yeah. Jews who were being raised on uh, uh, moder- mod- mod- being modern, mm-hmm. uh, for, religion was completely passe. And Mordechai Kaplan, who again was a couple of decades older, than Heschel, um, uh, uh, and was doing most of his work, uh, the center of his creative work in that period, in the pre-war period, uh, 
uh, felt that Jews were leaving religious Jewish life in droves. And they were. We know that many of the immigrants who came to this country were just so happy to not have to deal with their overbearing shtetl life, which included all of these practices. Um, so one might say that Judaism had become ossified even before that, yes. uh, in the old country. And so the Holocaust, of course, can never be minimized. It's a big part of how I approach this. And this, this process was well underway. I'm agreeing. Yeah, yeah, I just, but it's in terms of context. Sorry, uh, Myra, a couple other people wanted to speak. Okay. Yes, Barbara. Um, like you, I grew up at the same time, and synagogue life was dead. And when I'd go to services, nobody was, I felt like nobody was getting it. People were, like you said, talking in rote. And I was fortunate to have a, to wake up, to have an epiphany, but because nobody was in the Jewish community that I was in was doing religion or spirituality in a way that was alive, Judaism was always something that I did on my own, away from synagogue. And I did, like the cliche, I went and explored other religious paths and spiritual paths. And largely, the difference that I found is that in my experience of Buddhism and the Hare Krishnas and every other yoga group is that you could go to their service or go to their form of worship and be transformed. There was something that was happening there that was palpable that you could that be infused with. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I would go to uh, a synagogue, you had to bring that level of consciousness to the service. It didn't do it to you. Mm -hmm. You had to be open and you had to bring your own consciousness to the service. Correct. So rather than having a spiritual experience, mm -hmm. you had to bring your own spirituality to the service. Mm -hmm. So that was very different for me, mm -hmm. that whatever happened in the service happened dependent on your level of consciousness and your level of openness. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things I wanted to say. But the other thing I wanted to say is, I think in response to something Gail may have said, or somebody else. My own personal, deepest spiritual experiences happen when I meditate, not when I'm with people, not when mm -hmm. I'm praying, praying, because that kind of takes me out of that. And I mentioned that to you once, and you said, so come to synagogue and meditate. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I so much appreciated that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's and right. This, and this is very beautiful. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Those are beautiful comments, Barbara. Uh, Let's keep in mind, again, as we reflect on our personal experiences, which are being expressed beautifully, that we're part of much larger social forces. Um, the spiritual revival that came after the psychedelic explosion in the 60s, uh, which kind of unleashed um, that, latent, that latent desire and need that many of us had, uh, and then the appearance of Eastern modalities in, I guess the word would be deracinated, I think is the right word, cult, stripped down from their cultural baggage, right, and imported to America, made them accessible to us because they were outside of our burdensome experience. But then, as people, spirits woke up in those experiences, some Jews started to look inward. Some of them were students of Heschel's at the seminary in the 60s, like my teacher Art Green, and others, Michael Strassfeld, others, who then initiated, literally initiated, 
the Jewish spiritual revival that started around 1970 with the Jewish catalog and Chavarat Shalom in Boston, 1968, and uh, Shlomo Karlbach starting to go to college campuses, and uh, that, oh, this experience is equally available here, but we couldn't have, I, I think we couldn't find it here because it's where our parents go, you know, and, and it was truly a dead scene, you know, so, um, uh, yeah, I see, I see the kind of, just the way I see that black, the black power movement initiating Jewish pride and feminism, and we're part of much larger forces, and I'm grateful that I got to come of age during a time of spiritual renewal, you know, where there was a wave for me to ride because of my own personality being a kind of a ecstatic, emotional, religious quality. I could find places and then come here to Woodstock and find a group of people that were interested in that too, you know, and we could grow together. And yes, we faced the problems over and over of all our conditioned reactions to coming into a synagogue, and therefore it means we have to behave like X, Y, or Z. And I cannot, I can't, I'm not able to cajole, beat it out of you. You know, it's like we're stuck with it. But we have to keep giving ourselves permission because it's right here, right under our own hearth. You know, it's all right here. And Heschel knew that. Um, Esther, and then Carol, and then Myra. I grew up within the tradition of the Sephardic synagogue. Ah. And, and in the Sephardic synagogue, men were separated from women when I was a little girl, and still are. Um, there are a few synagogues where that doesn't happen. But what I experienced um, in Sephardic synagogues, even as an adult, was a sense of um, doing it right, uh, being firm, um, and also a kind of a negative um, quality that came from the rabbi. Um, <laughs> um, you know, quieting the troops, keeping them on, on page, um, not allowing the natural feelings to come forth. Here, what I have experienced is joy, which I have never experienced before in the synagogue. Mm. And I remember one particular service rabbi where, um, sorry, where you went to the windows and you opened them up to allow spring to come in. All right, the peepers. To, the peepers. <laughs> and for me, that was a revelation that that, that, that experience could, could, could come in and fill us, fill, fill me in particular. And so I think as part of what Rabbi Herschel is talking about, there needs to be this joy, um, this feeling of um, connectedness, not the feeling of an individual praying, but that we're all together praying. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. And this is exactly, I mean, I'm glad you were, I'm, I'm touched and happy that you were moved that way. That's the goal. That's the goal. There's, as Heschel will say in a million different ways, there's, there's a universe inside us that, that, that has to be discovered and expressed as much as the universe outside us, that, that 
Otherwise, we're not a whole person. Uh, Carol? What I wanted to say has changed so many times as I sit and listen and think about it, so I'm not exactly sure what I will say, but what this has brought me to, thinking about my mother, um, we were, she was raised in, in a, um, well, they didn't, they didn't even get a synagogue until she was a teenager because they lived in a town where there were no other Jews. But she was raised a Reformed Jew in some small town in, uh, in the South. But I don't know where her depth of love for Judaism came from, but she certainly gave it to me. But she could not have articulated it in any way. And, and the synagogue I grew up in, which I also loved, and I felt very safe and warm and cared for um, until I got older. And, <laughs> Didn't want that anymore. Um, I'm thinking of my mother sitting in that room, listening to the beautiful music that was coming from behind the. They, you couldn't even see the singers. They were they were behind the the where the bima was. There were, you know, it was like a huge. I don't even know what it had. Lattice work, that's what it was. Um, but this incredible music would come through. And this, but this was not like an experience that she would have in any concert hall. Right. This, this, this was as deep and as rich and as moving to my mother as anything that we do here. And I'm just realizing that as I right. sit here. Right. That, that we can't just say, oh, it was all crummy and we saved it. No. This, is just, this has been going on for thousands of years. That's right. And there are people who have gotten it. That's right. This is the part I didn't know I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's so important to remember it's that. It's so good. Right. He he Heschel is talking. He's giving a particular kind of talk. It's, it's a prophetic talk, you know, you're bowing down to idols, you know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But no, we wouldn't be here if there hadn't been a through line all the way through of people's souls being moved. Not to mention that there are so many other elements that make up for a full community life. He's just addressing prayer, prayer in this talk. Go on, Carol. And the insight that I just got mm -hmm. in this classroom setting behind the wall of the synagogue is right now for me feels like life changing. It's fantastic. So I, who knows where it comes from, but, but I have to keep coming to where it might happen. Thank you, thank you. Yes, you just remember your mother and the choir and, and, the, and that was prayer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, beautiful. Miriam? So that reminded me. My favorite place to be as a child was next to my grandmother singing gospels. Mm -hmm. And she was missing the gospels in the church. She said, there's nothing happening in the church. I was raised Methodist. There's nothing happening there. And she was missing the gospels. Where She said, they sang with heart. And now I get it. Yes. And it was so upsetting to her. Oh, and you got to be with her. Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. Good. But that's why... 
I mean, that's why I fell in love with Harry Belafonte and I almost fell in love with him. Oh, go to church with Harry, yeah. <laughs> and and I know I understand why we like con um, um, performances, you know, concerts, because we can move and dance and have energy and, and you know, hair. Well, we've heard about what going to hair was like when it first came out. Oh. It was, yes, Carol's told us her stories. It was an, a, a moment of, of ecstatic opening. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what we want. But hair was right on schedule with right. everything else we're right. talking about. What right. opened this door yeah. to us feeling like something was missing? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, before, okay, but um, I saw um, Avis. Yeah, I was thinking that when you go to a museum, see the art, very often they'll have a timeline history of the world that, that that's happening when these pieces of this type of art perhaps will be uh, created. And I'm listening to like this, it's all like this timeline of, of first being very Jewish and, and then pulling back, you know, going let's say from the time they left the shtetl our forefathers and came here and then the assimilation and then the Holocaust and then the McCarthyism and the gray suits at IBM and everybody going to the same movie and then all of a sudden the Hare Krishnas and hair and it keeps going and going <laughs> and then all this is it's almost like our souls were going through this process this timeline that you were describing that's all I could see oh how interesting and then when Miriam was talking about her, her the grandmother, and I used to love to sit next to my dad at show, and it was also a very boring show. But there was one thing about sitting with my father on the right, maybe my brother, and then my mother on the left. They they went to show because they had to on the left, and my father never had to go to show. He loved to go to show. And it was such an impression, and I sat next to him, and I love to go to church. That's so beautiful. Wow. Thank you. Thank I you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. May I say one other thing? Yes, Barbara. Um, somebody was mentioning about prayer in a Hasidic shul, and some people complain, although I don't think anybody here did, that the women are up above, and they're talking, they're not really praying, and the guys are down below and they're doing their own thing and sometimes it doesn't really seem very spiritual, it seems like by rote. And um, at Shlomo Kalbach Shul, and he's from the Hasidic tradition, Lubavitch, instead of the mechitza being the separation between the men and the women where the men are down below and the women are above, it was right down the middle of the synagogue so that the men and the women were separated but they were equal. Mm -hmm. and the prayer there was so infused and joyous and mm -hmm. full of life. It was very beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, we can't pigeonhole any group, anybody. You're going to find two people in a synagogue. One's there, and they're there out of love, and the other's there out of obligation. The, the purpose of this gathering isn't to determine which form of worship. Every form of worship can become uh, rote, and every form of worship can be a vehicle to transcendence. It's uh, all about the crucial word of kavana, of our inner intent. Uh, wh whose hand did I, I, I see? Oh, yes, Harry, right? 
And there. There's a point here that I think is a little different than this. And, and, and you're talking about somebody that grew up with really no religion. I mean, I would go to, I went to, I went to temple when my father died because the, the rabbi used to wait in the, in the hallway and grab me and say, we need a minion. And I would go in there and I'd do my job. When he called me, when he called me, we didn't get to go. Uh, and what we did on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is we walked from temple to temple to meet our friends. Right. None of that. But there always seemed to be amongst myself and some of my friends uh, this thing that was missing. I'm not saying it's Judaism. Something's missing. So what we looked for, because we had no bring-up, we were, we were kidnapped. You know, we, we, uh, which means it's all right, you don't have to do anything because you never learned it. But uh, which, uh, which I learned as a Kabbalah thing. Um, we would go in and the ones in, in college would study philosophy to see how we could find out what that is. Mm -hmm. And we usually settled on um, maybe Plato for logic and then we settled on the Asian ones because there's always a little more in the Asian you can get into it like that. I don't know if he's addressing the fact that there are people that, that would like to do this and that are doing this now, but never knew how to do it and never could do it. And they did it themselves by coming up on their own and saying, okay, now when we go to church, when we go to a temple or church or whatever it is we go to, we have that feeling, but there's no dogma. I mean, the dogma was never there. So it becomes the same thing that I think he's talking about, and I don't know him. And, and I, I think that's probably... Um, a lot more people than you think that do that because we didn't have these experiences. Oh, these oh no! I it, I know it's a lot more people. No, no, no. Uh, one of the re things I uh, that that I have uh, uh, encountered hundreds of times is someone coming in the door and saying, "I don't know how to do this. Nobody showed me," and it's a real handicap because it, it, you don't magically learn to play the piano. That's you know, call it practice, spiritual practice. That's why it's called spiritual practice. You don't magically learn to play the piano and then find it satisfying. Someone says, here, come on in, sit down at this piano. It's just an unbelievably transcendent experience when you make beautiful music. And you say, it's the same with religious forms. And if those forms were not, were not um, provided for us, then we're at a double disadvantage. Because if the form was provided to us, as it was to me, but not the content, at least when I was ready to open that door, I had the form. And I could start to fill it with my heart's content. Uh, but um, I have colleagues who come to rabbinical school, I remember some classmates of mine, who had come from secular backgrounds, and the ground they had to make up was that much further. So on the one hand, this is a real, it's a real problem and a handicap for many, many people. On the other hand, a spiritual revival movement, such as Hasidism was in the 18th century, uh, tells many stories about um, the, uh, you, you've heard this one, many of you, about the, the Baal Shem Tov leading the service and uh, feeling like something's just not moving, everything's just constipated, stuck in the room until a little shepherd boy who can't read blows his flute with all his heart and everyone turns to look at him and Baal Shem Tov says, thank that kid because he just released all your prayers up into the uh, cosmos. So this idea that your hearts, if you can speak that heart language, you're ahead of the game. And then comes the challenge of marrying that with the form. The form is a good form. 
I mean, you know, it's not a bad form. It's still a it's 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 still a form, but it's a good form. It's filled with gratitude and praise and glory, and it's fantastic. Um, but if you don't know how to fill it with your heart's expression, so coming from either way, this is a real challenge. Um, and I, I think I understand what you what what you're relating to. I'm thinking. Let me read some more, and uh, we'll see. Well, he's going to continue in this in this vein for a while. Uh, let's see. Um, how about the next to the bottom paragraph on page one hundred one? People expect the rabbi to conduct a service, an efficient expert service. But efficiency and rapidity are no remedy against devotional sterility. Orthodox rabbi worry, rabbis worry about the bima being in the right place. What about the heart being in the right place? What about prayer? We have developed the habit of praying by proxy. Many congregants seem to have adopted the principle of vicarious prayer. The rabbi or the cantor does the praying for the congregation. In particular, it is the organ that does the singing for the whole community. Now, that worked for your mom. It doesn't work for Heschel. Too often, the organ has become the prayer leader. Indeed, when the organ begins to thunder, who can compete with its song? Men and women are not allowed to raise their voices unless the rabbi issues the signal. They have come to regard the rabbi as a master of ceremonies. Um, and my teacher, Reb Zalman, who's another, uh, Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi, who uh, was um, another product of uh, the Hasidic world who became one of the leaders of the spiritual revival movement in Judaism, he liked to call it jumbo jet Judaism. And he would do this whole thing of the rabbi and the cantor giving the instructions and telling people when to fasten their seatbelts and saying, well, don't worry, we'll take you in for a nice landing and just sit there. So... Is not their mood in part a reflection of our own uncertainties? Prayer has become an empty gesture, a figure of speech, either because of lack of faith or because of religious bashfulness. We would not admit that we take prayer seriously. It would sound sanctimonious, if not hypocritical. We are too sophisticated. But if prayer is as important as study, if prayer is as precious a deed as an act of charity, we must stop being embarrassed at our saying a prayer with devotion. So uh, those who know Jewish sources, do you hear what he's reflecting in that last? If prayer is as important as study and as important as an act of charity, on three things the world stands, on Torah, on prayer, and on acts of loving kindness. So that's sort of the pillar, one of the pillar statements of Judaism. Um, now what he's going to get into as we go on is another problem, which is, our theologies. Who are we praying to? Right? And that becomes another real issue right, for modern folks. But we'll get to that soon. Ours is a great responsibility. We demand that people come to synagogue instead of playing golf or making money or going on a picnic. Why? Don't we mislead them? People take their precious time off to attend services. Some even arrive with profound expectations. But what do they get? What do they receive? Sometimes the rabbi even sits in his chair wondering, why did all these people flock together? <laughs> Spiritually helpless, the rabbi sits in his chair, 
taking attendance. <sighs> yep. Who's, who's here? Who's, yeah. There's another privation, the loss of grace. Our prayers have so little charm, so little grace, so little grace. What is grace? The presence of the soul. A person has grace when the throbbing of his heart is audible in his voice, when the longings of his soul animate his face. Now, how do our people pray? They recite the prayer book as if it were last week's newspaper. They ensconce in anonymity as if prayer were an impersonal exercise, as if worship were an act that came automatically. The words are there, but the souls who are to feel their meaning, to absorb their significance, are absent. They utter shells of syllables, but put nothing themselves into the shells. In our daily speech, in uttering a sentence, our words have a tonal quality. There is no communication without intonation. It is the intonation that indicates what we mean by what we say, so that we can discern whether we hear a question or an assertion. It is the intonation that lends grace to what we say. But when we pray, the words are faint on our lips. Our words have no tone, no strength, no personal dimension, as if we did not mean what we said, as if we were reading paragraphs in Roger's thesaurus. It is prayer without grace. Of course, we offer them plenty of responsive readings, but there is little responsiveness to what they read. No one knows how to shed a tear. No one is ready to invest a sigh. Is there no tear in their souls? Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Assembled in the synagogue, everything is there, the body, the benches, the books, but one thing is absent, soul. It is as if they all suffered from spiritual absenteeism. In good prayer, words become one with the soul. Yet in our synagogues, people who are otherwise sensitive, vibrant, and arresting, sit there aloof, listless, and lazy. The dead do not praise God. Lo hametim yahalaluya, that's from Psalm 114, 115. The dead do not praise God. Those who are spiritually dull cannot praise the Lord. That we sense that this is a problem is evidenced by the many valiant but futile attempts to deal with it. The problem, namely, of how to increase synagogue attendance. A variety of suggestions have been made, for example, to bring the prayer book up to date by composing shorter and better prayers, to invite distinguished speakers, radio commentators, and columnists, to arrange congregational forums, panels, and symposia, to celebrate annual projects such as Jewish Culture Sabbath, Jewish War Veteran Sabbath, Boy Scout Sabbath, Interfaith Sabbath, why not a Sabbath Sabbath? <laughs> to, to install stained glass windows, to place gold, silver, or blue pledge cards on the seat to remind people of their birthday dates. Well-intentioned as these suggestions may be, they do not deal with the core of the issue. Spiritual problems cannot be solved by administrative techniques. The problem is not how to fill the buildings, but how to inspire the hearts. And this is a problem to which techniques of child psychology can hardly be applied. The problem is not one of synagogue attendance, but one of spiritual attendance. The problem is not how to attract bodies to enter the space of a temple, but how to inspire souls to enter an hour of spiritual concentration in the presence of God. The problem is time, not space. Yes. I, I can see... So that was a long... By the way, that was just a long, like... 
uh, Sakatuam there. So, but I didn't want to stop in the middle. It just seemed too good. Yeah. I, I can see how this can work in a synagogue, in a large synagogue, where you have a lot of people where you can pretty much remain anonymous and not have to join in on every rote prayer that's being mm -hmm. said. And other than the Amida, uh, during, uh, there you can pretty much do your own thing and nobody may notice. Mm -hmm. However, for instance, last night I went to a Shiva minion, mm -hmm. and to me it was extremely boring. I know the service, we did mm -hmm. Mincha, we did Marub, one right after the other, mm -hmm. but there's no way you can do that in a packed Shiva minion in somebody's home where you're shoulder to shoulder, and you really need to join in or you really look like you're out of place. Mm -hmm. And there's really no way to get spiritual in that, except maybe during the Amina if you don't follow the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know any, any way to get out of that. Right. Conundrum. This requires a, a fairly radical approach to um, prayer, uh, in communal prayer. Because if you're stuck with the form of um, a traditional conservative or conservatox minchamari, there's not much leeway there. I don't know what to do with myself in those settings. It's one of the reasons I became a rabbi. Because I needed to cre experiment with creating settings where we could follow the traditional order of prayers, but still have plenty of spaciousness in which to insert the prayers of our, our insides. And no, I don't know what, I wouldn't have any good advice for you. You're, you're, you're fulfilling a mitzvah by showing up at that shiva minion, but the, if it's a conservadox setting, it's like, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. Um, I wait it out. It's like, it's a real problem for me. It's a real problem for me. What I'm explaining to you is that um, the, there's some radical treatment required for this, for this um, ailment. And it, it, means, it means being willing to try, try different ways of approaching prayer. That's one of the things we do here at this synagogue. Was there a hand back there? Ivy, and then Myra? Um, I'm, not, I'm not really interested what you just spoke Myra was, was your comment. Uh, a a little bit, so yeah. OK, Myra, go ahead. Um, no, I understand what you were saying about um, these prayers. However, um, sometimes um, I find myself uh, traveling and going to a synagogue in another country. And I don't even know the language. But when I hear the prayers that I don't even know the translation, but I hear the prayers, I recognize them, and I feel like I'm home. I Isn't feel that like interesting? It's, um, that's my connection around the world. I mean, we've gone to synagogues in different countries and places. And, but when you hear that <coughs> prayer, I feel somehow a visceral connection to my people all over the world. And Excellent. So, um, that, that's part of the spirituality. Excellent. Um, the mm -hmm. other thing I wanted to say before is, as you were saying, people can uh, take a sentence or do whatever they want or meditate during the service, which would make it personal to them. Mm -hmm. Well, what I have found over the many years, and I 
got into Reconstructionism when it was at the SHA with Mordecai Kaplan. Mm -hmm. That was on the west side in uh, 86th Street, yeah. And I grew up in a, a conservadox synagogue, okay? And my family was very involved, and I went to Hebrew school. And then I kind of lost the impetus of, of why I was interested. I was in my 20s. But when I went to the SAJ and I saw a so different, uh, a service that was so different, and we literally stood up, I remember this so vividly, I was just talking about it, on Yom Kippur, and we sang, We Shall Overcome. You know, and we went, got on a bus and went to the march in, in uh, Washington. I was in, enlightened, and I still feel that way, that if um, Jews are not comfortable now in that particular setting where they are, there are so many different varieties of synagogues and prayers and worship that they can um, find their comfort level in. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm bringing that, your, your concept of meditate, well, you can go to a different synagogue and, and feel more spiritual there. Mm -hmm. And Shomo Kava, the reason people loved that synagogue, because I was there also and I knew him, um, was there was a lot of dancing and singing, you know, and he was very joyous and the service was joyous, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't conservative. Okay. Right. Now, it's conceivable that a conservative service, and I know this happens in some places, is filled with spirit, right? The form, any form, can be filled with inner intent. Uh, as it happens, that doesn't happen too often, but uh, um, that's because there's so many other barriers. One of the barriers which um, uh, Heschel addresses as this goes on is... Um, uh, the modern, uh, the, the, the modern sense that there isn't a supernatural God. So what are we saying all these prayers for? You know, who are we addressing? Um, uh, one of the jokes in Reconstructionism is we say, to whom it may concern. You know, that's an old one. Um, uh, but for Heschel, and this is where we get confused, there's a difference between theology and experience. And theology is experience's poor cousin. It may give shape to how we view the world, but it can't replace experience. And if your theology suppresses your experience, then it becomes a, an actual obstacle towards soul. Right? Keep that word soul in mind. I think that gets to the heart of the issue. What are we doing if it doesn't have soul? Especially in what's called a synagogue or a house of worship, right? If it doesn't have soul, um, uh, it ain't got that swing. What's the song? It don't mean a thing. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Um, Ivy. And I took a poetry course, and I used the word soul, 
and my teacher said, well, no, I'm, we don't use the word soul anymore, it's no, and, oh. <laughs> and it really left a big impression on me, because I remember it, you know, 50 years later, and I was not brought up in a spiritual, religious home at all, my, my, my parents were Jews who were terrifically happy to assimilate into New York, and on my own, I was, I don't know, about 13 or something. On my own, I walked down two blocks, and I walked into the first synagogue that was there. I didn't even know the difference between Reformed. Mm. I, I had no clue of what anything was. I walked in myself. I sat in this service, and it was dreadful. And, I mean, dreadful meaning I, I felt like I could have been in a church, there was an organ, there was a collection plate, I mean, I was old. And, and then I talked to someone, I guess, a rabbi or whomever, because I was thinking vaguely in the back of my mind, do I want to become bat mitzvah? You know, not that I knew anything about what it was, and I think I took the first class, and all they asked me to do was memorize. And I kept saying, would you tell me what it means? And they said, no, you don't need to bother with that. Just memorize. <laughs> okay, I was out the door. So this is the first synagogue, my very first synagogue, what, 10 years ago or so, that I walked into and I felt like, okay. <laughs> this is what I've always been thinking maybe religion was about. <laughs> um, and I see that I was living right in the, those historical times when we really didn't look in those directions. You know, it wasn't it wasn't supported. You know, until it was in the 70s and 80s, and then it was not anything traditional. It was you know way out of the picture. So I feel just extremely fortunate that I have landed where I've landed at the time in which I've landed. You know, it's like it's just really pure good fortune. Oh, I'm glad. It's our good fortune, Ivy. Thank you. I keep remembering the service <coughs> we went to in the kibbutz. In the kibbutz in Israel. We went, you said that that's the service you've never been to. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was all the songs I knew. Right, that helps. <laughs> but it went, it's like, <laughs> you, you come in and that's the service I've never been to. <laughs> It helps to know the songs. It's good to get hit of the sing, but that's not it either. We're looking for that hard to, very hard to um, define quality called soul. Um, uh, Laurie, let me just say one more thing. And uh, so I was talking about theology versus experience. Heschel, his, remember two of his most important books were called God in Search of Man and Man in Search of God. Because Heschel's understanding of Jewish, theology is not the right word, Jewish, um, the map of the universe, the map of the, of the con universe of consciousness, is that there is a, a magnificent, infinite, unending, beyond words, creator. So it's not like a person, right? And that the way the universe and consciousness are so made up 
is that that creator is yearning for us to be in connection. Our soul longing for the creator, the creator longing for our soul. And that theology is the poor cousin of that uh, um, aspect of humanness. And that some, some people are more, are more inclined to pursue that with single-minded passion, you know, to be, a, to be a spiritual seeker with everything they've got. Others have other focuses in their life. But that a full life, a life is not full unless it includes the amazement of being aware and alive. Just the amazement of it. For him, that's at the root of the desire to pray. It's like you want to, something in you longs to be connected to the infinite mystery of the universe. And um, that doesn't negate any other part of ourselves. But prayer is the form that addresses it. It could be meditation, it could be, but prayer in Jewish form, is that's, that's what it is. So I want to explain that, because we're not going to get to read all of it. Lori, what did you want to say? So I wanted to say that everything you said about what was in the other synagogues is what gave me the motivation with Nathan to have a conversation with Jack, and we can define all that later, that gave vision to something like this. And then you came on board, and you just took it to its amazing infinity degree of realizing what it is that people yearn for. Because everything you said is who you are and how you lead services for us. And I just thank you for that. Thank you. That's true. Those who don't know Lori, Lori and her husband Nathan, that this idea came out of their living room, the, the, what became the Woodstock Jewish congregation. And then, and then I showed up a couple of years later and was uh, on my way. So thanks, Lori. Amazing. <laughs> That's true. Lori! Lori's <laughs> a visionary. She, she, she gets her next big idea and then brings it into the world. It's really an amazing thing. Um, so, so what Heschel will argue in this is that our theologies impede our ability to have our souls in connection with God. But for Heschel, God is a reality, but not a reality that you can then describe and pigeonhole, right? God is the force in the universe that says, let there be light. God is the energy in the universe that freed us from slavery. God is everywhere for Heschel. He's a God-intoxicated guy. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, and uh, for him, that's... The nourishment of his soul, his, the soul's aliveness and connection to God, is primary. It's what feeds the inner, what feeds his outer. In other words, it's what, he's not an activist because, uh, he, because he, he cares about democracy and he cares about human rights. He cares about human rights and democracy because God said 
let my people go. Right? For him, this is a message from the moral imperative of the universe. And he wants us all to learn how to cultivate the relationship between our souls and that moral center, that creative center, that astonishing, living, dying, destroying, creating center of the universe. That's where our vitality and our inspiration come from. <coughs> and for him, its absence doesn't mean that the other aspects of benefit that we get from a synagogue aren't real. It means that something, something vital is absent. Does that make sense, everybody? Um, so, uh, yes, Gail. I remember a long time ago, you gave, he was giving a dvar, and you said, you know, when Moses heard his name being called at the burning bush, we don't know that it was loud. It might have been very, very <laughs> And he heard it. And I've been thinking a lot about that lately, because what we don't, we're not taught, and we don't have a lot of guidelines for, <clears throat> is to be able to listen for signs mm. of being talked to, of being called, of being in the presence of mm. whatever we mean by God, by the, the mystery. Mm. And I've been working on it myself, of trying to sort of just pay attention to cues, you know? And, and one of them, I mean, when Heschel, it isn't that so much that Heschel remembered or you know, knew that God said, let my people go. It's that in that moment, he was feeling that in marching, in being out there, he was in the presence of the divine, was with him. Does mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. And we all have that. We know what that feels like when we're somehow with, as against, sort of over there somewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something to cultivate, that experience of withness, because it can be very subtle. And in our culture, we're not trained or attuned to paying attention to that, what I think is subtle most of the time. Occasionally it's a thunderbolt, but mainly it's subtle. That's all. Thank you. Beautifully said. I'm trying to decide which part of this to read with you and let you take the rest home and read it at your own leisure. I think... Um, um, yes. Just before you switch, because I have to tell, can I just tell a funny story? Please do. <laughs> I was telling my husband Joe about your class last week, and I, he said, what is it? And I said, it's about Heschel. So he says, you know, my father was a great follower of Heschel and went to many of his lectures. He, I guess there was a camp in New Hampshire called... Um, Yavne? No. No, Devar, no, let me remember. Noah Devar, something like that. But okay. anyway, he, so somewhere in the late 50s, 60s, he used to go, and he said, you'll see on the, in your bookshelf where you have, keep our Jewish things, you'll find a couple of books of Heschel that we um, took from my mother's house before she passed. So I went and looked, and I found this book. It's to Joe Tucci, signed with kindest regards, A.J. Heschel. Oh, isn't that marvelous? <laughs> so, and, but uh, the reason I'm bringing it up now is because, Joe, why did, she, why did your father have it dedicated to you instead of to him? 
And he said, well, because I was kind of losing my way. And I, Joe's father was a religious man, but very liberal. And he said, because my father wanted to influence me to make sure I didn't lose my way along the Jewish path. So I have this book. That's marvelous. I thought I would do Thank you. Show and tell? Absolutely. <laughs> after the, yeah, I want to see it afterwards. That's marvelous. Thank you, Avis. Thank you, thank you. Patricia? Hold on. Thank you, Avis. That's beautiful. I'm not sure I can totally express this, but it totally fits with what Gail said. I have this, that I, what you were talking about, about, you know, do we believe in God? You know, who are we talking to? That whole kind of thing. I feel like it all needs to be turned around so that instead of having this name thing that we're like, what is that? I, I don't know if I, it's like switching it around. What it's that that soul feeling, right? Mm -hmm. That just <laughs> I don't know how yeah. to say it. Just turning it around, like mm -hmm. find that, and that's what people are kind of have been talking about. Mm -hmm. But you have to you have to find it mm -hmm. yourself in you mm -hmm. somehow or in. You know, be open yeah, and not get caught up on what am I talking about? Right. And there's so, no, yeah. I can't believe there's anyone who's never, I hope, <laughs> experienced something of whatever that is, you know, at some point, sometime. So, um, Beautiful. I, I can't remember who said this recently, and I wish I could name, honor the person who said it, but we don't know exactly what our soul is but we know when we've lost it. I've really kept that with me. Uh, it's not that we can define that quality, but you know when it's absent, and you want to have that connection back again. Because the soul's a mystery, because it's, the, it's, our, it's our portal to the infinite, and to eternity. So, yes, that's a great line, isn't it? Page um, 107. Yeah. <clears throat> paragraph begins, prayer is the microcosm of the soul. All right, just one sec. Page 107. In the middle of the page. Uh, prayer. Uh, would you like to read it, Esther? Uh, well, uh, all right. <laughs> prayer is the microcosm of the soul. We're on page 107 in the middle. Prayer is the microcosm of the soul. It is the whole soul in one moment, the quintessence of all our acts, the climax of all our thoughts. It rises as high as our thoughts. Now, if Torah is nothing but national literature of Jewish people, if the mystery of revelation is discarded as superstition, then prayer is hardly more than a soliloquy. If God does not have power to speak to us, how should we possess the power to speak to him? Thus, prayer is a part of a greater issue. It depends upon the total spiritual situation of man and upon a mind within which God is at home. Of course, if our lives are too barren to bring forth the spirit of worship, if all our thoughts and anxieties do not contain enough spiritual substance to be distilled into prayer, an inner transformation is a matter of emergency and such an emergency we face today. 
The issue of prayer is not prayer. The issue of prayer is God. One cannot pray unless he has faith in his own ability to accost the infinite, merciful, eternal God. So again, someone arguing in the, um, what for me is the boring culture war of, but I don't believe in God, doesn't understand what Heschel's after here. Um, Heschel's not, all Heschel's telling you is infinite, merciful, eternal. This, this, thank you, that's a beautiful paragraph. I found one I wanted to read too. Uh, turn to page, um, sorry, one, no, I know where I want to go, okay. Uh, turn to page 110, further on in that discord. Page 110. The next to last paragraph down at the bottom where it says the true source of prayer. The true source of prayer, we said above, is not an emotion but an insight. It is the insight into the mystery of reality, the sense of the ineffable that enables us to pray. As long as we refuse to take notice of what is beyond our sight, beyond our reason, as long as we are blind to the mystery of being, the way to prayer is closed to us. If the rise of the sun is but a daily routine of nature, there is no reason to say, in mercy thou givest light to the earth and to those who dwell on it every day constantly. That's from the morning prayers. If bread is nothing but flour moistened, kneaded, baked, and then brought forth from the oven, it is meaningless to say, blessed art thou who bringest forth bread from the earth. The way to prayer leads through acts of wonder and radical amazement. The illusion of total intelligibility, the indifference to the mystery that is everywhere, the foolishness of ultimate self-reliance are serious obstacles on the way. Oh boy. It is in moments of our being faced with the mystery of living and dying, of knowing and not knowing, of love and the inability to love, that we pray, that we address ourselves to him who is beyond the mystery. Praise is our first response. A flame with inability to say what his presence means. We can only sing. We can only utter words of adoration. This is why in Jewish liturgy, praise rather than petition ranks foremost. It is the more profound form, for it involves not so much the sense of one's own dependence and privation, as the sense of God's majesty and glory. I'm going to go on. There is a specific difficulty of Jewish prayer. There are laws. How to pray, when to pray, what to pray. There are fixed times, fixed ways. We were getting to this before, so I thought we'd see what he had to say about it now. Fixed texts. Um, on the other hand, prayer is worship of the heart. In Hebrew, avodah shebalev, that's, that's what, prayer has a variety of names in Hebrew, and one is the service of the heart, or the worship of the heart. Uh, the outpouring of the soul, a matter of devotion. Thus, Jewish prayer is guided by two opposite principles, order and outburst, regularity and spontaneity, uniformity and individuality, law and freedom. Uh, 
These principles are the two poles about which Jewish prayer resolves. Now, this is what I like. He's not, try- he can't, he's not telling us this is how you solve it. He's saying, since each of the two moves in the opposite direction, equilibrium can maintain only if both are of equal force. However, the pole of regularity usually proves to be stronger than the pole of spontaneity. <laughs> and as a result, there is a perpetual danger of prayer becoming a mere habit, a mechanical performance, an exercise in repetitiousness. The fixed pattern and regularity of our services tends to stifle the spontaneity of devotion, as we have said. Our great problem, therefore, is how not to let the principle of regularity impair the power of devotion. It is a problem that concerns not only prayer, but the whole sphere of Jewish observance. He who is not aware of this central difficulty is a simpleton. He who offers a simple solution is a quack. (laughs) Isn't that great? He's not prescribing like, here's, you know, follow this recipe. He's saying, hey, it's challenging being a human being who, you know, and certainly being Jewish is not an easy thing. It's a, it's a, requires all of our attention and energy. It is a problem of universal significance. Polarity. Oh, hold on, before you turn the page, look at the footnote where he cites the sources for about prayer and spontaneity. The bottom footnote. The contrast between order and outburst is made clear through the term keva. Shammai said, make your Torah, in the sense of legal decisions made by the scholar, a fixed thing, keva. Do not be lenient to yourself and severe to others, nor lenient to others and severe to yourself. Uh, In contrast, Rabbi Shimon says, when you pray, do not make your prayer a fixed thing, keva. Rabbi Eliezer said, he who makes his prayer a fixed thing His prayer is not an act of grace. In other words, he hasn't fulfilled the mitzvah. Okay, it is a problem of universal significance. Polarity is an essential trait of all things in reality. Okay, so here's, this is one reason why I like reading Heschel, because he understands that life is a bunch of dichotomies, a paradoxes, right? and in Jewish faith, the relationship between halacha and agada is one of polarity. Halacha is, these are two classic terms of Jewish law. Halacha is the letter of the, the description of the law, what the practice is, and agada are all the stories about why we should do it. And, and uh, what, you know, it's the, it's the story part. Agada is the story part. It comes from the same root as hagada, which means the telling. And halacha is the way. So halacha literally means the way, and agada means the story. Um, how boring if you just walk on the way and don't know the story. But how if you, don't, if you just tell the story, but you don't know where the hell you're going? You know, it's sort of like that. Um, you don't have the discipline and structure you need in your life. Taken abstractly, they seem to be mutually exclusive. Yet in actual living, they involve each other. Jewish tradition maintains that there is no halacha without agada and no agada without halacha, that we must disparage neither, neither disparage the body nor sacrifice the spirit. The body is the discipline, the pattern, the law. The spirit is the inner devotion, spontaneity, freedom. The body without the spirit is a corpse. The spirit without the body is a ghost. And yet the polarity exists and is a source of constant anxiety and occasional tension. How to maintain the 
reciprocity of tradition and freedom, how to retain both keva and kavana, regularity and spontaneity, without upsetting the one or stifling the other. He's just laying out the question, and his, he, ten, he repeats himself, but boy, he has beautiful ways of saying it, doesn't he? Um, at first sight, the relationship between halacha and agata in prayer appears to be simple. Tradition gives us the text, and we create the kavana, or the inner intention. The text is given once and for all. The inner devotion comes into being every time anew. The text is the property of all ages. Kavana is the creation of a single moment. The text belongs to all Jews. Kavana is the private concern of every individual. And yet the problem is far from being simple. The text comes out of a book. It is given. Kavana must come out of the heart. But is the heart always ready three times a day to bring forth devotion? And if it is, is its devotion in tune with what the text proclaims? See, he's not ignorant of any of this. In regard to most aspects of observance, Jewish tradition has, for pedagogic reasons, given primacy to the principle of keva. There are many rituals concerning which the law maintains that if a person has performed them without proper kavanah, he is to be regarded ex post facto as having fulfilled his duty. In other words, laws, this is Jewish law. If you give someone charity and you're, you hate doing it, you grumble all along the way, you are considered to have fulfilled that mitzvah, right? That, that, uh, that requirement. If you light the Shabbos candles, external act. However, um, uh, where was I? Oh, uh, in prayer, however, halacha insists upon the supremacy of kavanah over the external performance, at least theoretically. Thus, Maimonides declared, prayer without kavanah is no prayer at all. He who has prayed without kavanah ought to pray once more. He whose thoughts are wandering or occupied with other things need not pray until he has recovered his mental composure. Hence, on returning from a journey, if one is weary or distressed, it is forbidden to pray until his mind is composed. The sages said that upon returning from a journey, one should wait three days until he is rested and his mind is calm. Then he prays. Jet lag. Um, now, I would expect that some of you might be surprised that uh, someone like Maimonides, for, who lays out in his fam- biggest work called the Mishnah Torah, the 613 commandments and you know, how to fulfill them, it follows the Talmud in saying that prayer has to be something that our soul is connected to. Um, anybody know who that is? Yeah. Oh, thanks. No idea That's okay. It was, um, maybe it's time to pray. <laughs> um, and uh, the... Um, so I actually have uh, taught a whole weekend on this, and I have a beautiful handout I'll share with you sometime in the future uh, about um, all the things that the rabbis, the classical rabbis, have to say about prayer having to be an inward act, or else it just doesn't count. And you, haven't, you haven't sinned or anything, but it's empty. It's, it's of no value. Um, so Jewish tradition is clear that 
just the pro forma act of prayer has no actual value to oneself or to God. Um, it doesn't condemn you for it. You understand what I'm saying? It's not like, don't do that. Significantly, Nachmanides insists, he's, Nachmanides is also 13th century, that prayer is not a duty. And he who prays does not perform a requirement of the law. It is not the law of God that commands us to pray. It is the love and grace of the Creator. Blessed be he to hear and to answer whenever we call upon him. That's really deep. Uh, Nachmanides, who is you know, the leading rabbi of the 13th century, uh, uh, says that you can't consider pr- the, the commandment to pray to be a law because you can't command inwardness. The gift of prayer is God's grace, the grace we experience when our spirits awaken, when we find we have found our, located our soul and are in discourse with the one who made us, the mystery that made us. Uh, I love that. In reality, however, the element of keva, of regularity, has often gained the upper hand over the element of kavana. Prayer has become zoganish, lip service, an obligation to be discharged. Lip service, pay lip service, interesting. Something to get over with. With their mouth and their lips they honor me, while their hearts are far from me, and their awe of me as a human commandment they have earned by rote, says Isaiah. Typical is the common use of the term service for prayer. Avodah, the Hebrew word for prayer, means all at the same time work, service, and worship. That's why avadim hayinu, we were slaves to Pharaoh, means servants. And yet the word avodah in the Yom Kippur service, the avodah service is the worship service, and avodah is also labor. Right, uh, if you know modern Hebrew. It's an interesting word. Yet, and to serve him with your whole heart does not mean to work with your heart. Service is an external act. Worship is inwardness. Prayer becomes trivial when ceasing to be an act in the soul. The essence of prayer is a agada. Yet it would be a tragic failure not to appreciate what the spirit of halacha, Jewish law, does for it. Raising it from the level of an individual act to that of an eternal intercourse between the people of Israel and God. From the level of an occasional experience to that of a permanent covenant. It is through halacha that we belong to God, not occasionally, intermittently, but essentially, continually. Regularity of prayer is an expression of my belonging to an order, to the covenant between God and Israel, which remains valid regardless of whether I am conscious of it or not. How grateful I am to God that there is a duty to worship, a law to remind my distraught mind that it is time to think of God, time to disregard my ego for at least a moment. It is such happiness to belong to an order of the divine will. I am not always in a mood to pray. I do not always have the vision and the strength to say a word in the presence of God. But when I am weak, it is the law that gives me strength. When my vision is dim, it is duty that gives me insight. 
this is interesting stuff um, about why we would align ourselves with a community of practice that does it this way. Or I was thinking while I was reading that about the relationship to God, about my marriage, you know, why I keep committing uh, when much of the time it's, it, it, it can be rote or like obligatory or you're just doing what you do because it's the right thing to do. So that within that framework of staying connected, I can find the pathways of soul that reveal themselves. Yes, Karen. Um, because I'm thinking about the, the, the in the very beginning when when um, when he says that that nothing new happens, nothing insightful happens, and to be in a group of people and not have anything insightful happen means I have to close myself off to a great extent. means I have to work hard to stay isolated in a group. Because all I have to do is look around and, and insights are all over the place, information is all over the place. Connections are all over the place. So just the very act of showing up with those other people, and I have no way of knowing what, what that's going to give me at any given moment. Is it such a gift? Thank you. <sighs> yes? Um, the, my name's Debbie. I'm, I'm an you feel phony. Yeah. Yeah. It's like superficial. It's not like mm-hmm. um, really coming from within. And wondering, let's say this week, where can I, where can I begin? Perhaps. How can it begin? So, in my opinion, mm-hmm. that's the advantage of having a form. Um, and I'll go back to the analogy of playing piano. Uh, I wasn't taught how to pray. I've spent the last 30 years more, I feel like, learning how to pray. Um, and it was, I don't know what kept me going sometimes, actually. Uh, but something in me wanted this. Uh, to want, just like someone wants to play piano. Something in me wanted this enough that I kept practicing and kept doing the same thing over and over again until it started to kind of come out of me, you know, as a song. And so it requires starting. It requires just doing it and feeling uncomfortable and phony and awkward and not knowing the words. It requires all of it. Uh, with the confidence, I guess I would say, that God doesn't care if you're embarrassed, you know, as it were. You know, when I say God, I hope most of you understand. It's like, uh, I'm using that as a very wonderful way of talking about not me. It's like, who, the, the universe just wants, wants, this is God in search of man. The universe wants me. The universe doesn't want me to shrivel and die. The universe wants me to learn how to use every, to go every aspect of my being and fulfill uh, 
what I was put here on the earth to do. So we were blessed, all of us, with many, many gifts in our uh, upbringing. But for most of us, based on the context and time and place of how we were raised, this language, this capacity, this facility was not part of our ed- ed- training and education. So you have to start older, and it's, you know, it's, 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 it takes time. So I would just find a group of people you're happy being with, like us, and just start coming. Just start coming, and then afterwards, evaluating. You know, a lot of people have come to synagogue here and say, find themselves surprised by the experience, or crying, or anything like that. And uh, I feel like that's because we've created at least the beginning of that fertile opening for people to understand what it means to let your soul speak itself. And um, uh, we're not, I don't mean to say we're the only uh, place, and I'm not saying that Judaism is the only way, by any means. Uh, Not by any means, but that would be my suggestion, is come with the embarrassment and the um, mm, frustration and the, the lack of comfort and do it anyway and see what happens over a period of time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Yes? Uh, I just had an idea that helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it won't work. <laughs> but sometimes I just look for a tiny piece of a prayer. Like I have a specific one I've been doing a lot, mm-hmm. you know. But that just the tiny beginning of something that doesn't feel totally false. It doesn't have to feel totally perfect, but just, you know, in a way, and then just. Marka? I was just going to say, I'm sorry, I don't remember your Debbie. name. Debbie. Debbie. Um, I can't re- find it in here. I, it was just one of the many sentences that um, he said about prayer that just stuck out of me. But he, he, he said, prayer is uh, shockingly embarrassing. Yes, that's that's right at the be- that's right at the beginning. I found that. Um, <laughs> It was over, oh yeah, it's the beginning of section two on page 103. Prayer is an extremely embarrassing phenomenon, he says. Numerous attempts have been made to define and to explain it. I will briefly mention four of the prevalent doctrines. This is a very interesting section. Um, The doctrine of agnosticism claims that prayer is rooted in superstition. It is one of humanity's greatest mistakes. A desperate effort of bewildered creatures to come to terms with surrounding mystery. Thus prayer is a fraud. To the worshiping man we must say, fool, 
Why do you in vain beseech with childish prayers things with no, which no day ever did bring, will bring, or could bring? Since it is dangerous fraud, the synagogue must be abolished. A vast number of people have indeed eliminated prayer from their lives. They made an end to that illusion. Um, uh, so that was the line. This section is really good. I, 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 I knew this article was too long, but I wanted, you'll go home and you'll read it and see what you think. Um, yes, but it is embarrassing to me. It's embarrassing in the sense of what you're revealing about yourself. It's about being vulnerable. You can't pray and not open your heart. You can't do it. And so it is necessarily embarrassing, self-conscious making, um, and so there's a lot of practice goes into being able to do that um, and move beyond our self-consciousness and embarrassment. In addition to learning the skills involved, there's that fundamental quality of allowing ourselves to look stupid, yeah, to be open, to not know, to address the universe. It's like... Um, so, I always think of Tevya, you know? <laughs> if Tevya can do it, I can do it. <laughs> but to be like Tevya, you know, to just stop in your tracks and talk to God. I love it. Martha? That was the point I was going to make, um, that it is necessarily embarrassing. Because I think, like, if you're looking at the tree of life, Malkut is really about embarrassment. Like, this opening to the pathway to prayer is about overcoming embarrassment. I just read two books on prayer this last week. One was called What's in the Way is the Way. What's in the Way is the Way. Which, just by its title, is pretty great. <laughs> oh, yeah, I just need the title on my shelf. I don't know if I'll ever read the book, but I'll just look at the title. And then Annie Lamont's book on prayer, which is called Help, Thanks, Wow. <laughs> help, Thanks, Wow. And yes. really starting with the help, not even as a petition, but just as help, not as a particular petition, but just as help to like, just get through the, the human condition. You right, know? the cry of the heart. The cry <laughs> yeah. of the heart. If it's the, the, the core Jewish example of that is the, and again, Judaism talks, the Torah speaks in stories mostly, is that the slaves in Egypt are cut off. Their spirits are cut off. It says they couldn't hear Moses because their spirits were cut off by harsh labor. And they are not connected to God. But out of their misery, they cried out. And God heard their cry and knew their pain. Right? That's what Exodus says. So the point is, is that until we initiate with our creed de cur, with our cry, nothing will start unfolding for us. But by initiating that cry, we have no idea what we're unleashing, right? Because you don't get what you pray for in that regard. You know, uh, in terms of what you think you want. If that's the basis of your prayers, you're going to be disappointed, you'll give up prayer, and you'll say it's all a bunch of hooey. But if you're willing to understand that it's the lack of crying out that is keeping you stuck, cemented in place, and that the next part of your life will only happen if you can cry out, what you're then putting yourself into is a position of, of extreme radical uncertainty. 
Then we get into a conversation about what faith is. You know, are, do you have a, are you willing to let go of control, most of which involves hanging on tight, in order to put the prayers of your heart out into the world and genuinely release them and allow whatever's going to happen next to come? These are deep, deep questions. Um, is your hand up, Anne? I just wanted to... Oh, oh sorry. Um, sorry. Go ahead, Esther, and then Anne. And then what's time to stop? I just want to respond to you by reading just one sentence that he writes on page 115. Prayer must have life. And, and I think for me that embodies everything. That um, he says it must not be a drudgery, something done in a rut, something to get over with. It must not be fiction. It must not be flattened to a ceremony, to an act of mere respect for tradition. Ah. Oh. oh, yes. If the main purpose, he goes on, if the main purpose of being a rabbi is to bring people closer to their Father in Heaven, then one of his supreme tasks is to pray and to teach others how to pray. Torah, worship, and charity are the three pillars upon which the world rests. To be a Jew implies the acceptance of the preeminence of prayer. Oh, this is beautiful. To be able to inspire people to pray, one must love his people understand their predicaments, and be sensitive to the power of exaltation, purification, and sanctification hidden in our prayer book, hidden in plain sight, I would tell you, once you realize it. To attain such sensitivity, he must commune with the great masters of the past and learn how to pour his own dreams and anxieties, his own dreams and anxieties, into the well of prayer. We must learn to acquire the basic virtues of inwardness, which alone qualify a rabbi to be a mentor of prayer. And one of such virtues is a sense of spiritual delicacy. Oh, that's beautiful. Vulgarity is deadness to delicacy. The sin of incongruity, the state of being insensitive to the hierarchy of living, to the separation of private and public, of intimate and social, of sacred and profane, of farce and reverence. In itself, no act is vulgar. It is the incongruity of the circumstances, the mixing up of the spheres, the right thing in the wrong context, the out-of-placeness that generates vulgarity. Well, this is all really interesting, too. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Spiritual delicacy. And the last word. Next to the last word. I'll have the last <laughs> I wonder if you can... Explain to me why this happens. I mean, it's springtime, and everywhere I look, I see colors. The apple trees are in blossom in my backyard. The bugs are out. The sky. And Sometimes, when I, often actually, when I pass, particularly a pansy, because it's so complicated. Pansies, yeah. I take my two fingers and I hold the blossom up because they tend to go down, and I look at it, and I say, how did you 
do that. <laughs> and then, if it's so overwhelming, I want to cry. Yeah. yeah. And crying is something that we associate with sadness. Only some of us. <laughs> Only some of us. Many of us know what it means to cry tears of joy and release. Oh. Exactly. Oh. Yeah, you'd find many of us understand what that is. Okay. So you just explained it perfectly. Yeah. You just explained it perfectly. What is that? I think it's our heart opening. Yeah. I think it's us remembering our soul. And in gratitude, we weep because we're alive again. It's just the most beautiful thing. It's the best kind of prayer. And spring is designed for it. Thank God for spring. Yeah, June is busting out. Oh. I wish it was a little warmer. <laughs> It'll get there, and then we'll wish it was cooler. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. We'll meet again next uh, Tuesday. There are a lot of things happening in the next couple weeks of the synagogue, and I put flyers on the table for all of them, except I didn't see a flyer for our Lagba Omer picnic this coming Saturday at 5 o'clock here. We're having a kosher meal with a barbecue that our men's club is coordinating, our men's group, and uh, it's not a potluck. We're just providing the food, so... That's this Saturday at, at 5, and the Klezmer band, uh, Bonnie Meadow and, and crew, are going to play music. That's on Saturday. But also, there's lots of other things to look at on the table out there, so please do. I so appreciate you bringing your presence here with me so we can have this exploration. I have the flyers for the Death Cafe. It's going to be at the synagogue. And look at Lori's flyers, too. Lori.